conversations I've been waiting to have them Trying to change the way I speak so that they don't feel so challenged Can you see the inconsistency, come feel the imbalance I can tell you either way, yeah, ooh, that shit's a distraction I can tell you either way, yeah, ooh, this shit's Hello and welcome to Her Hustle's brand new podcast series, How I Hustle With me, your host, Emma Louise Boynton Her Hustle is a new careers platform for ambitious women born out of a shared frustration between myself, my co-founder Elspeth Mary, at the lack of genuinely good, genuinely helpful career advice on offer. We're all under so much pressure these days to find the perfect job, one that combines purpose and passion, which pays the bills and feeds the soul. But finding that ideal job and carving out that great career is hard. And if you aren't lucky enough to have a clear vision of exactly who and what you want to be, the search can feel both confusing and isolating. Not least because so often we don't actually know the full range of jobs out there, nor what they really involve you doing. That's why we've created Her Hustle, an events and networking platform, and now also a podcast series, which aims to get behind lofty job titles and vague job specs, and demystify the day-to-day of jobs across a broad range of sectors. Throughout this podcast series, I'll be speaking to brilliant women at all different stages of their careers, discuss how I hustle. That is what it really means to do what they do, how they got there and how they get it all done. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by writer, broadcaster, author and musician Clemency Burton-Hill. An award-winning violinist, Clemmy has played all over the world. She started her career in print journalism as a staff editor at Vogue and has since gone on to write for a litany of brilliant publications, ranging from The Guardian to The Economist to The Times Literary Supplement, as well as authoring several books. Her broadcasting career began when she became part of the presenting team for The Proms for BBC, before going on to become the performing arts reporter for The Culture Show on BBC Two and then presenter of the Radio 3 breakfast show for the BBC. Clemmie is now living across the pond in New York, where she is the creative director of music and arts of New York Public Radio, with whom she recently launched a fantastic new podcast series called The Open Ears Project, which we'll be discussing later. Clemmie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I want to know everything about your fascinating career so let's get started thank you so much for having me i could just listen to your dulcet tones all morning it's delightful it's the nicest compliment i've had (laughs) thank you um so music means something different to everyone for me i grew up with my dad filling the halls of our home with everything from country to blues to some good old rock and roll and every time i hear a bit of johnny cash i think of graham stubbornly ratcheting up the volume of his speakers while the neighbors complained about the noise your dad sounds rad (laughs) he's pretty great so tell me, Clemmy, what does music mean to you? Oh, my goodness. How long have you got? Um, I mean, put very simply, music means everything to me. It has been the keys to my life. Mm. Um, I started playing music when I was very little, and it's it's kind of an important origin story, I think, because although it makes me sound like a bit of a freak, which maybe I am, it also, I think, does shed light on so many things that I've come to do sort of since that moment. Um, I grew up in London in the early 1980s. My mum was a single mum. I had two older half-brothers. Nobody played an instrument. I think maybe my brothers played the recorder like in a dodgy way at school. Mm. But my mum, by her own admission, is tone deaf. So it was not like some weird classical music hothouse environment. And I wasn't even two. It was the Christmas before my second birthday and I was watching something on TV. I said it was the early 80s. My mum had a very chill approach to screen time. And I was um, watching so something my mum. On... I spent my youth watching nothing right. on TV. And I, you know, served us fine. Exactly. Um, I saw a kid playing the violin and I was totally captivated and kind of went to the TV screen and got obsessed with what this person was doing. 
And apparently just kind of just kept going on about it. My mum obviously thought that it would pass because mm. I was like a toddler and just being annoying and it would, you know, I'd move on mm. as toddlers do. But I was obviously very captivated by music. And she asked a friend of hers, she was in the theatre and she asked a friend of hers who worked at the Royal Opera House, you know, if she knew anything about like whether you could teach kids mm. music when they were this little. And she got put in touch with a violinist in the orchestra there who said, well, there is actually this method that kind of aims to teach people when they're very, very young and it's called Suzuki. So my mum, bless her, dutifully, you know, went back to the phone book and, you know, 16, 17 motorcycle dealerships later was about to give up. And then she got hold of someone called Helen Brunner at the London Suzuki Group. And Helen really is one of those kind of magical figures in my mm. life. She was my first violin teacher. And although I didn't stay with her for that long, I, I went to a different teacher when I was about seven. She, as I say, I think that the philosophy of what her approach to music making was and the kind of underpinnings of Suzuki, which are so philosophical and so spiritually aligned with everything that I've gone on to do. Really, this idea that music is our universal language. Mm. We make music before we speak. We were musical beings before we were verbal beings. Mm, I love that. And I have this kind of passionate, like, fervour for this rootedness that we are as a species in music. And I think I look at, um, I got kind of like weirdly into anthropology and sort of ethnomusicology and history of like how human beings have connected mm. through music um, a few years ago when I was writing a book. And this idea, this image of human beings, you know, even as sort of hunter-gatherer societies coming together around a fire at the end of a day, yeah. after a long day's hunter-gathering, mm. coming together and making music together, singing their stories. That is how we communicated mm. who we are, how we evolved, how we came to figure out who, you know, why we're here almost you know i think there's no existential too, there's no existential question too big for music it's all there mm. and so for me music really is everything it wasn't that i wanted to become a professional musician mm. i did play very seriously but it was always for me about kind of unlocking other experiences and finding ways to connect with other human beings and i had some really formative experiences when i was very young like playing at the berlin wall before it came down oh, with this, this bunch of you know hundreds of kids from around the mm. world and obviously I didn't fully grasp the implications of the political situation, mm. but I knew there was something incredibly powerful about the fact that I couldn't speak the same language as these kids who'd come from Japan and Sweden and Germany mm. uh, to play together. But we were all united in something that felt to me unbelievably powerful, even as a seven-year-old. And those experiences have just been replicated or... I guess not replicated because they're all individual, but I've had experiences like that all through my life. So nothing can shake this belief that we are a musical species or a musical sharing yeah, species. Music. And, you know, whether it's classical or hip hop, mm. you know, Johnny Cash, it's all music. Mm. And I sort of have this romantic notion that music is basically built of the same sonic building blocks and the same DNA. Mm. And so are we as humans. So what unites us, I think, is much more powerful than what divides us. And music is a very, very powerful way of connecting us. But there is nothing more wonderful than hearing someone talk about the passion that they have most in such a beautiful and engrossing, inspiring way. You're very I, kind. I was just thinking how ineloquent I was being God, then. no, you can't possibly say that. It's I'm early. Just I haven't had enough coffee. No, I'm enraptured by that. I just, I'm, I'm ready now to come take a little music sabbatical. I just, it's, it's really, really galvanizing. When you hear someone speak as you've just done, it does... 
it kind of feel, it reminds you of the kind of the joy that you feel in music. And as someone who doesn't listen to enough music at all, it really makes me, as I say, just want to go away, put my headphones in, and kind of and and, and partake in this in this universal language. I love too the the social sort of communal aspect of mm. music making. As I said, like we've always been a music sharing species. And mm. as a teenager, I was a great like maker of mixtapes for my mm. boyfriends and my friends. And in a way, that's still what I love to do. I love to share music with people. Honestly, if someone said to me, "I love this track." listen yeah. to it there's not a single track that I wouldn't gladly listen to if someone makes a recommendation it's just you know that that thing when someone else has responded to something and had a reaction to something and wants Touch to share it with me. you even if you think like I'm not sure I'm not that into death metal I'm not <laughs> sure about that today you know and I feel about that with classical music because I do have this you know I'm lucky I've been steeped in it all my life mm. so I've got lots of classical music kind of yeah. up my sleeve that people sometimes feel like maybe you know it's a very daunting genre and I, I, people would say like you know can you can you can you sort me out with a, mm. a classical playlist like we were doing some shady drugs deal <laughs> I realised there was this kind of hunger for it and I could I had the power to to bestow it upon people which was this amazing responsibility and gift but I love that sort of I love the private you know you saying I just want to put my headphones on and kind of get lost in it yes mm. that's like mm. such an important part of my life but also that thing of like we could listen together as well and we'd have some sort of shared, shared experience. communal experience mm. which I love which is so evocative because the next time you hear that song you immediately are transported back to that yeah. very moment in time it's such a powerful time thing. machines Totally. I like don't know about the science of it, but I know that they they literally do take you places. It's Completely. transporting, it's traveling without me moving. It's incredible. It's, it's like when you give someone a book or someone recommends you a book, and they're like saying, "I'm inviting you to come with me or to to go, to go into this world that I loved so much. Have this world, have a piece of this world, whether it be in a song, in a podcast, or a book. It's just mm-hmm. inviting you into that different universe. It's so so satisfying, especially too as we're moving into this world where so many recommendations are algorithmically mm-hmm. driven. When a human being who was moved by something or affected by something says here you too have this Mm. or press something into your hand or your ears or your eyes or whatever I find that just immensely powerful now I keep coming out to that word powerful I should think of another adjective but you know what I mean it just I'm I'm so moved by that as a even if I respond differently to it just Mm. the fact that someone else has had this reaction to a piece of art that somebody else has made all these years ago is amazing completely and so by the time as you as you've just mentioned now by the time you're in your teens you're pursuing a career I believe as a professional violinist no I definitely was not pursuing a career as a professional violinist um (laughs) I I was doing it but you were doing it professionally in a way that was yeah I it's an interesting one because I suppose I was making some money playing the violin in mm. my teens, which I suppose makes it sound like I was pursuing a career. Mm. Um, so I didn't mean to correct you in that no, way. No, 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 not at all. I'm, I stand to be corrected. But it is, I, it is an interesting one because I think I was definitely on a kind of track where if that mm. had been what I'd wanted to pursue, I, I probably could have tried to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was surrounded by people. I had a scholarship at the Royal College of Music mm. and I was surrounded by people for whom there was nothing else in their life but classical mm. music. And so the only reason I'm correcting is because it's, again, quite an interesting insight, I think, into what I've gone on to mm. do or rather to not do. Um, I knew I wouldn't have been able to necessarily articulate it like this as a kind of 12 or 13-year-old, but I knew there was something wrong for me the idea that you are going to be a musician but you were fundamentally incurious mm. the idea that you didn't listen to other types of music that you only listened to classical music the idea that you didn't mix with anyone except for classical musicians yeah. the idea that basically all you did was play music and practice because it is a very insular it's a funny weird irony that this art form that should be so curious mm. and so expressive mm. of being requires you to be quite Kind of, or it monofocused. It, in a it way. enables monofocus. Mm. It kind of mm. apologizes for it 
in a way that I think is sometimes really unhelpful for musicians themselves. I thought even then, God, I don't want to listen to the music that's being made by people for whom there is nothing else in their life but music. And I've gone on to be so inspired. I've been so lucky to have sort of mentors and people who've dropped into my life as these guiding spirits um, at certain points along the way who are the epitome of the opposite of that. Mm. They are they are the curious. They are the life livers. You know, I'm always obsessed with this Maya Angelou quote, uh, life loves the liver of it. And I think that... Oh, I love that quote. I think musicians so need to be livers of life. Yeah, you know, completely. and I, I'd be around all these teenagers who... Like, weren't acting like teenagers. They were just practicing. I'm like, oh, my... Dude, like, go and, like, fall in love. Mm. Get your heart broken Mm. and tell me something with your music, you know. Um, And I'm not in any way denigrating people who wanted to just have Mm. this single track. Mm -hmm. But the world isn't really big enough for all of those Mm -hmm. musicians to to come and do something and say something. And I think that the musicians that I really respond to in the classical world, as in other genres, are those who really have something to say. And I don't know if you can really have something to say if you don't live and if you're not curious about other human beings. That's fascinating. And is that that curiosity of how other people live what what then led you into acting? Um, I think I was sort of always, so I was, even as a kid, so I had, I've established I was a bit of a nerd when it came to music and that happened very early on and I loved being on stage and performing for people. Mm. I loved having that connection with an audience, that communal experience again. I loved Mm. the idea that like the molecules in the air would change when you walked on stage and this thing that had to be kind of experienced in time because there was silence and then there was going to be music and then there was silence again and we would all somehow be part of that together. I loved I loved that. I loved going to watch shows, theatre, plays. My mum was, as I say, had been in the theatre. So I was sort of brought up in that. I was so unbelievably privileged to live in London. And my mum had lots and lots of friends who were in the theatre. So we'd often get, you know, tickets, free tickets and things to go and see stuff. And so that was a really sort of just fundamental part of my life. My mum was like never cooked there wasn't any money so there was no like you know fancy anything else Mm. no holidays whatever there was like she believed that mattered that Mm. we went to the theater (laughs) she believed that it you know she for that for her that was what was important we could eat baked beans and whatever every night but that was what mattered as long as your mind was being rich yeah we were being fed in other ways i guess um that's a wonderful way of seeing it yeah we were definitely i was definitely you know soul nourished more than i was kind of uh nutritionally (laughs) nourished in that sense bless her she did obviously keep us fed but that was what was important yeah, for her, and I think priority. that really kind of fed into me as well. Um, so I've totally lost the thread of the question. Acting. Sorry, acting. So what oh, led yeah, you into acting? Mm. Um, yeah, I just I love telling stories, and I think if you look at all the disparate things that I've done mm. over my career, um, they are all united by this desire to tell stories and to connect with audiences and to sort of, I guess, be in a kind of expressive, mm. um, communicative mode and I had just always absolutely loved acting and loved being in shows loved casts and loved like the experience of coming together as a team and I loved playing in orchestras for that reason as well um so I sort of fell into it I was doing a summer school at this very legendary North London um institution really called Sylvia Young Theatre School and there was musicals and like you know all of that cheesy stuff which I absolutely loved and I just got really really lucky I got spotted by an agent and got a part in a tv series when I was 15 and that kind of led to this other I hadn't ever thought I want to be an actress Mm. again it was kind of but it was all part of the same thing um that was also kind of why I suppose I loved playing the violin as well just Mm. kind of communing with people that performative aspect yeah 
And then you ended up or going just being on... a massive show off. But I don't think it was that. <laughs> and you ended up then going on to study um, English literature at um, Cambridge, and obviously you've gone on to be a fantastic journalist. Did you have a kind of career plan? Did you have a kind of kind of five year set out goals or anything like that? <laughs> So I'm laughing because the idea of a career plan is just so hilarious for me because I no, no, I have never had a career plan. I'm so glad to hear As you can say probably that. tell. <laughs> no, it's so galvanized to hear that because I actually interviewed a really fantastic chef the other day who said from age eight she has been making five year career plans, which is a practice that was instilled in her um by her parents and one that is totally and utterly alien to me. I mean, if I could do like a five-minute career plan, like if I knew what I was doing next day, that would be something. I mean, I, I feel, feel as though the the unifying principle has been, yes, this passion for telling stories in mm. whatever forms, being curious, mm. being curious about everyone and everything. There is genuinely nothing to... There is nothing in life that isn't interesting to me, truly. That's kind of what what it is and then beyond that it's just a big old I was gonna say mess it's not really a mess but it is chaos it has been totally unpredictable um I've been I feel very lucky that I've been driven by those desires and that's meant that I haven't got distracted by things that I think can distract you along mm-hmm. the way like people sometimes say like oh you must be very ambitious because you do lots of things and that's really interesting because in some ways if I was really ambitious and I'd probably do one thing I'd be like your chef I'd be making five-year career plans and I'd be pursuing them pursuing just the totally thing that would lead me to the thing and yeah. I've never really had the thing that I'm mm. trying to get to because for me it's such a cliche but it kind of is the experience along the way I'm a great believer that everything is connected and also that no experience is wasted experience. Mm. And if you look at my career, which I put in like, you know, air quotes, because it's not really a career as such. Um, it's full of lots of things that probably don't make sense on paper. Like people be like, oh, why did you go to Bangladesh and make a TV documentary about the first women's driving school? What on earth has that got to do with, you know, a podcast about classical music? Like, oh, I hear you went to, you know, why were you teaching in a refugee camp in Palestine? What's that got to do with writing a novel? Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of, well, for me, they are all really intimately connected. Mm-hmm. And it and it's sort of, it is all about that um, curiosity about how mm-hmm. people live and how people be and mm-hmm. how people are in the world and how they tell their own stories mm-hmm. and how... That is what endures. That is what's left of us. And I'm very respectful of my friends who've gone on to have like what I would consider real careers. You know, they they, you know, got headhunted by famous banks and management consultancies mm. or whatever or law firms at university and now they're nailing it. Mm. Like they are CEOs and they are editors and they are like, you know, big grown ups in big grown up places. And I sort of feel like I'll always be this slightly kind of starry eyed everything's curious, everything's interesting, I don't know what's coming next. It's so, so comforting and inspiring in equal measure to you speak of your career in that way. Because uh, for me, and I think for anyone and everyone listening, you have such an enviable and amazing career that from the outside I think does probably, I know definitely me, feels as though you, it must have been, there's got to have been a master plan. You must have just, yeah, driven by ambition, knew what you wanted, knew where you were going, just this master juggler of a million and one things. And because I think often we have it like instilled in us from quite a young age that you need to find your thing. Mm-hmm. Like what is the crib? What is the thing that you're going to do? And I think it can lead to so much like dislocation. We were discussing this before and it's kind of the reason I ever wanted to set up her hustle in the first place. Because I think we're under so much pressure to carve out this perfect career, to find this right path for ourselves. 
But all the while... And this brand, this and brand, your brand has yeah. to stand for something. I mean, my brand stands for, like, storytelling mm. chaos. You know, it's sort of so many different aspects of that. I should point out, though, that the one thing I have done really really consistently mm. throughout is work my really ass hard. off. Mm. I think sometimes people think, oh, it's all just fallen into place. Like, mm. look at this lovely career with all of these things. And because it doesn't necessarily make sense down like a one track, follow this and you'll get yeah. there thing, doesn't mean that it's kind of happened in a, like, fallen out of the sky kind of totally. way. I think you do have to probably work even harder. Yeah. Because you have to be alive and open to every, every possible mm. experience that comes your way. I am... Um, probably pathologically addicted to work Mm. and those who love me like my closest nearest and dearest Mm. would probably say like you know too much there are no boundaries there's Mm. no you know you get to log off at the end of your day and that's the end of your Uh, working day and then you go home (laughs) there's just never been that in Mm. my life like people talk about work-life balance and Mm. it's as hilarious as a five-year career plan for me like there just isn't any um so it's it's I feel unbelievably blessed to Mm. have the the career that I do or the life that I do. And I should point out that it also comes of clearly from a place of just mm. such immense privilege. Mm. I grew up in London. I went mm-hmm. to, you know, I was lucky. I had a music scholarship that saw me through very, 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 mm. very, you know, good schools. Well, that's you know, my talent. Mom, that's not just luck. Well, I was yeah. lucky, but I, I yeah. did still go to like excellent Worked schools. Hard, yeah. You know, I went to an excellent university. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I clearly have privileges as a white middle class mm-hmm. 21st century female Mm. um, that have to be acknowledged but beyond that you have to wipe your ass off and Mm. I'm afraid there's no kind of shortcut to that people often now very sweetly will sort of write to me and say like I really want a career like yours how do you do it how do I get there and it's like are you prepared to work work fucking hard all the time work fucking hard like you never stop Mm. you never stop and that's I love Mm. at the same time I'm very much that person who's like oh I've never worked a day in my life because but I love, love what I do, what do so yeah. much and I really do. And so it's not a grind. You know, I have obviously worked in jobs that I don't love to yeah. just earn money. Um, and I feel so, so funny. We had a meeting yesterday in a, I probably shouldn't say this, but we went up to like a big corporate law firm in Midtown for a meeting. And I walked through the doors. I was like, oh, my God, I'm so glad I'm not a lawyer. And that is with no respect to lawyers. I mean, a lot of my family, a lot of my favorite people are lawyers. But I just, I, I just couldn't do it. Like mm. I literally couldn't do it. Um, so why? Because it just feels the pressure. It's constrained. It's... I think it's. I mean, obviously, it's, I don't have a legal brain, and I yeah. say that as someone who comes from a family of legal brains. So mm. I just, I wouldn't have been able to do the work. Mm. Um, but the lifestyle. But the life. The, it's yeah, more about the lifestyle. A, yeah. Yeah. I feel so. I mean, it's really funny because I have done this kind of reverse commute into a real job mm. for the really the first time, uh, apart from a very brief stint at Vogue and a very brief stint at the Economist covering um, someone when they were on maternity leave. Like I've never worked in offices until now, and um, just at the point where finally mm. the sort of multi-hyphenate, mm. multi-platform mm. life and career that I've been living instinctively mm. my whole life uh, is just about being accepted now. It's becoming mm. a thing. It's becoming an aspiration for many people. I've done this weird reverse commute. In into a into a job and it is a a proper grown-up job and I absolutely love it Mm. I love being in this you know environment now but it's sort of ironic that I've got to 38 and that's you know 37 and that's kind of you know um where I'm at but yeah I do feel very 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 lucky to do something I really do love with all my being oh and it's the kind of the luckiest thing in the world and just going back to what um you said previously so obviously it takes a huge amount of hustle 
um, to do what you do. But for someone kind of starting out, and so kind of saying just leaving university, so when you f- first left Cambridge, what does that, those first steps of hustle look like? What do they look like for you? So what they looked like for me in 2003 when I graduated was going to the masthead of every publication that I loved and respected and wanted to write for and literally like looking at the address and of course it was snail mail there Mm. was email but I you know I think at those days I was literally writing letters like probably typing them out Mm. but you know I've just graduated I read English luck I got a really good degree so I was lucky in that respect um I'm really interested in um you know uh, literary criticism is there any chance you're giving the opportunity to write a book review you know it was basically that I came of you know, of age, I suppose, and an interesting time. I, I think I got my first email address in sort of 1999, maybe, and it was a hotmail address. And even at university, I was writing essays longhand. All my degree was, you know, your your face literally, like, your eyes were like, what? I'm like, what, what is longhand? longhand? So Emma, Which there were these print? things called pens. And there was this stuff called paper and our hands used to do things that our thumbs weren't even really involved in. The Um, thought of it. Can Can you imagine? imagine? I mean, I'm like, you know, now, like if someone said to to me, you know, write a three hour Mm. paper on tragedy with your hands, go. (laughs) I'd be like, what? Um, What cruelty is this? So the internet was there, but it wasn't really Mm. there. Like I wrote my essays by hand. I shoved them into my director of studies, you know, pigeonhole in the porter's lodge having written them out um i think that's hilarious now but you know i i i so i was sort of i'm old enough that that was my reality Mm. but that means that when i graduated when i first sort of emerged um into the the workplace the grown-up workplace i i didn't have another platform it wasn't like i could say you know here's some here's some work that i've published on my blog Mm. here's you know a post i wrote about t.s Eliot. here's you know it was just like would you give me a shot and again that's what i mean about the immense privilege of being able to say you know i've just graduated from cambridge got this degree it was a really good degree like you know uh, people would take me seriously from that i suppose Mm. and so i was lucky i started writing book reviews um and then i started writing a column and I think at that point, I was just, you know, I was really lucky. I got given an opportunity mm. to sort of show what I could do, and it was if you if you nailed that, if you worked really hard and you delivered on it, mm-hmm. then suddenly you were in. Mm. You were in this world that was real because mm. you had a byline, and that was a real physical newspaper that people went out and bought. And so that was lucky. And I think what we have today, you know is this incredible opportunity to find a platform for your voice, even if no one gives you the permission to do so. But then you're just out there in the world. Like there are fewer of those kind of formal structures. Mm. So it's an interesting time. and I kind of Mm. straddle both worlds. And I I think it's an incredibly Mm. democratising, levelling, you know, technology has opened things up in the most staggering ways in some senses. But there are disadvantages as well. So I feel quite lucky to sort of, Having had the experience of of the early, you know, 2000s mm. um, and then sort of seeing how the world has shifted so drastically in the last kind of 10 to 15 years. Unrecognisably so. so. I mean, the pen and paper. The pen and paper. <laughs> I mean, I'm really glad that I have this shock. like analogue like, childhood completely. and this analogue Pre MSN. I mean, you it know. Did no good for anyone. No, well, you know, it's sort of got us to where we are today. It's done some good. The MSN, good. but I was modern. <laughs> The MSN was the, the curse in our house. But. I remember when I read Dolly Alderton's book, though, I was like, fuck, I'm old. Because I this whole like MSN messenger thing, too old for that. Too old for my Oh, space. every word like, of that. I was like, 
Yes, that's me. that was me. That was me. That was me with the boys and the heartbreak. No, oh, I had the, all the boys and all the but, heartbreak, but, on but in an analog in way. I mean, and when I joked mm. about like making mixtapes, yeah. I'm not kidding. I was making fucking mixtapes. I wasn't making Spotify playlists. I was making like actual cassette tapes, like Sunday evenings. I was really into. I was really into like underground house and garage music yeah. in the '90s, and I would like sit. Because you DJed for a bit as well. I, I did. Really yes, I love that. I did. I was like such a. I was so into that whole scene. It was, it's really weird when I look back at it now. I spent a lot of my sort of 15, 16, 17 uh, in like record shops in yeah. Soho. Do you know what record shops are, Emma? Do you know record, what record shops? Are? I have a kind of loose recollection, yes. <laughs> Mind you, they're all coming back, they come back for, uh, for hip millennials these days. But exactly. yeah, that, that, was, that was a, a golden era for mm. Soho record. Or sort of, I suppose, the end of what had been mm. a very golden mm. era for dance music and for independent mm. record shops. And, you know, just that whole scene. I'm really glad that I had that. And I know it doesn't sound like it's connected to classical music, but being in a club, and being able to, you know, witness, experience what happens when a bass drops. It's no different, really, from when the bass drops in a Mahler symphony. And mm. for me, they are just connected again. And I think it's important that I had those club experiences mm. and also have them in concert halls. I go back to that idea of how insular my friends and colleagues were at the Royal College of Music mm. and all they listened to was classical mm. music. And it's just like, there's a world out there. Like, go and live it, go and experience yeah. it, go and have some fun in it a comes club back just... at 17 and, you know... Yeah. And it's making people more. feel. It doesn't have yeah, to making people just feel. feel there's move. nothing. Literally, that like it is just about how are people moved. Yeah. How are people moved? How are people energized yeah. and like feel alive? Mm, and mm. music is this, you know, Amazing vehicle unifying for vehicle for that. Completely. And just going back to your um, entry into journalism, so had writing been something that you'd always done and always loved? Were you yes. kind of writing away? Did you have you kept a diary? What what I what was led to that? so such a nerd really but I mean I was obsessed with reading so before I was a writer I guess I was a reader mm. as a kid I just like from very tiny just could read wanted mm. to read gobbling up it just that was always just my thing mm. um one of my things <laughs> I was gonna say you have many <laughs> um and I think I did always write stories and I never really? thought I'd be a writer but I always wrote stories it's like I never thought I'd be a musician but I always played music I never thought I'd be an actor but I, you know it's just there's been no career plan mm -hmm. there was no like I'm going to be a writer how mm -hmm. does one go about being mm -hmm. a writer but I always wrote and I mm -hmm. always read and I think that's the kind of key um I don't think of myself as a writer in that sense but you know when people say like oh you know would you have any tips for sort of aspiring writers mm. it's always read 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 there's just, just no just read mm. like just read um and so I did a lot of that and I always as I say always wrote stories and there are sort of pages of embarrassing notebooks at my mum's house just from when I'm you know tiny upwards oh. and I sometimes find these, you know, recently she's been like, can you please clear out all your stuff? You don't even live in London anymore, let alone like this house. Can you just get rid of some yeah. of the stuff? And so I was kind of like randomly going back through boxes of junk and there are all these sort of embarrassing stories written when I was like 11, 12, oh. 13, 14. And yeah, they... But they end just... up being the foundation stone to your brilliant career in journalism. Well, so I don't know about that, but there is, I suppose, this, you know, continuing this idea of the unifying thread, curiosity about people, mm curiosity about storytelling mm. I think if you're someone who has that impulse you walk through I mean mm. every time I see a human I like start making up a story about them that sounds really weird and creepy but like I love like I'm on the subway not on my phone because I'm just looking at people's faces and like thinking about their lives and their worlds and their wondering where they've stories come from, where they're going, and, like, you know, it, I can't help totally. it and I haven't written I've written two novels and then my last book was non-fiction my next mm. book is non-fiction I probably won't write a novel 
maybe ever again, especially not while I have young children. I just don't understand how any parent of young children has the headspace to write fiction. But, you know, I can't help but have that sort of fictionalizing, mm. narrativizing impulse. It just is there. I don't think that will ever go away. Mm. Um, so, so I was, yeah, one of those nerds. That's really interesting to me, actually. Just bring up um, the fantastic books you've written. Um, one thing I wondered with that is that you're obviously someone, so you've had a fantastic career in broadcast journalism. You're so innately warm, both kind of professionally and personally. What is that like writing, having writing a book when you're forced to presumably go into long periods of solitude mm. and just complete kind of utter focus on what you're doing? How have you found that? It's really hard, and I think I'm not grown up enough to um, incorporate it into my kind of regular life, and so. Every time I've written a book, mm. I think this is just also part of being like a journalist. This mm. is just how I always was. Like the deadline has to be like whooshing past my ear oh, for me I'm, to really click in. I'm and then exactly I really click in. Yeah. So I have written all my books in quite like focused bursts of like sustained activity mm-hmm. rather than sort of like these grown-up novelists who'd be like, I write for three hours a day and then Every I go and pick morning. up and then I go and pick up my kid. And I mean like like how I mean how, how? <laughs> um but that's not me. So I've yeah, they've always involved kind of like emergency stays mm. at like my parents in law where there are no distractions and I basically get up at like five AM, don't get out of my pajamas all day, mm. write, write, write like a maniac and then, you know, get up the next morning and do the same thing. So um I think that's just sort of who I am. Mm. I have to stop beating myself up about it. But it is a you know, it is a it is quite a solitary existence and I probably couldn't do that every day Solely, for my sure. life. Like that couldn't mm. be sort of how I lived mm. my life. But when I'm in it, I actually really enjoy it. Mm. Um, I love, I've always been, I've always had the ability to like weirdly turn on focus. And because I was acting a lot during my A-levels, you know, I would be on set writing history essays mm. when there was like this crazy bustle all around me. I did a TV show for the whole of my first year of A-levels. So I was like filming probably three or four days a week, but doing my levels simultaneously. And so I think that just kind of, I do have this sort of weird ability to focus. Also, those are, of course, pre-social media days. So you didn't fall didn't down an Instagram scroll oh, hole. And, you know, yeah. you went and did your history essay, mm. I suppose. Um, and I, I think I feel really grateful for that ability. I don't think I could sort of do what I do and juggle across multiple mm. platforms in the same way if I didn't have that ability to really focus when I'm in when you need the to. thing, when I need to. Sure. And what first prompted you? So you've written two books of fiction and then one book of non-fiction. What first made you want to be to step into the world of being an author? Well, I don't think it was as conscious as stepping into the world of being an author. Mm. That's, you know, again, everything in my life has been connected in this mm. weird way. Um, the story of my first novel came about because I was in... Lithuania filming a TV show and um, I was on something called weather cover which meant Mm. that I wasn't actually filming but they were keeping me there in case it rained and they Mm. couldn't shoot the scenes they wanted to so I was stuck in this sort of hotel room in Vilnius and I had been in Vilnius the summer beforehand filming and I guess it was like good for tax breaks or something Mm. so everything was being shot in Vilnius (laughs) I was staying not only in the same hotel but the same hotel room and Vilnius is a lovely, delightful city, mm. but I had sort of, I guess, done its delights. And I was on my own sure. and in this hotel room and it was like winter and kind of, you know, 
I just sat down and just this story kind of poured out. I just started to write it one day and then it, out it came. And mm. I suppose that had been something I had mm. always done. I didn't write that one longhand. That mm. one I did actually write on a computer. Wow. Um, I was going to say. <laughs> and I, uh, I was lucky, I suppose, because I'd been writing journalism for a lot. I had an agent already and mm. um, I was broadcasting and acting. So mm. people, you know, I've sort of, again, privilege, I guess, I had a I had a voice, I suppose. People mm. were willing to take me seriously a little bit when I said, oh, I've been like writing a few chapters of a book. Mm. Don't think it'll do anything. Never thought I would do anything with it. It's weird because I, I guess I must have believed in it because I was writing it. Mm. But it wasn't like, again, there was no plan. There was no purpose. It was just like, have to do this thing. And I was super lucky I sold it. And um, before I finished it, it was sort of sold on a on a partial manuscript, which I think is really lucky um, for a first-time novelist. It probably wouldn't happen these days unless you were literally like Zadie Smith, which I'm really not, you know, and really very, very, very far away from being, like, anywhere close to the novelists that I really admire. But mm, um, So I wrote it, and then um, then after that I got a book deal to do mm-hmm. two more books, and I wrote another novel, and then I had a kid, and I just, as I said, I don't think you can write fiction if you've got a baby and you've got mm. lots of other things going on. So then I wrote a non-fiction book, which just was kind of easier than the total inhabiting of another world, which mm. fiction requires. So, um, and, and this third book, so it's a year of wonder, classical music for every day. Just tell me about that briefly. So it sort of is what it says on the tin. It's a Ron Seal of a book. You're probably too young to remember Ron Seal as, but, you know, it does what it says on the tin. Classical music for every day, it is a book that starts on January the 1st mm. and ends on December the 31st. Mm. And for every day of the year, I've curated a piece of classical music that I really love and that I feel kind of has, you know, something to impart, whether mm. it's joy or beauty or an interesting story or perhaps a neglected female voice from the musical history that we don't talk about. Um, and the, I guess the sort of animating principle behind Year of Wonder was to throw open the doors to this extraordinary world of classical music that is so daunting and can feel so elitist and so unwelcoming if you don't have the background in it. And yet it's not the music itself that is that. It's all of the bullshit cultural baggage that surrounds mm-hmm. this completely really help really unhelpful term classical music which is so off-putting. And I was having this kind of, you know, I've been working, I've obviously played the violin for my whole life, so I had a lot of classical music mm-hmm. in my life. I've been working as a presenter at the Proms and at BBC Radio 3, the Breakfast Show. I felt like I just had this incredible um, responsibility almost to share it. To like share what you learned. Classical music purists are great ones for opportunity hoarding. Mm. You know, there's like people say they want to expand the audience for it, but they don't really. Like mm. they want to kind of keep it for themselves. And I really don't want to keep it to myself. I don't care if you don't love it. Like you don't have to, but you have to know it's there and it's yours for the taking. But and you're I, welcome to it. You're I think welcome. that's just often feel quite a kind of exclusive space. Totally. And that's exactly say, the cultural baggage, the language that's The language is so music. unfamiliar. Most of it's delivered in other languages, literally yeah. other languages. You know, the, the names are unfamiliar. The terms are unfamiliar. Why would you know anything about mm. it given the way that our education system works now and the way that classical music is so far from the mainstream and like ever mm. further and further away? People, I think there's this kind of shame attached to the idea of like, oh, I don't know anything about it. Mm. And yet there's still this sort of sense of like, maybe I should because maybe it's like this, you know, thing that makes you sound super smart or and cultured yeah. or smart or something. 
And for me, that is all so beside the point. The music, get to the music. Mm. What does the music do to you? Does it move you? Does it delight you? Does it make you think? Does it make you feel? Does it help you focus? Mm. Does it help you get through whatever you're having to get through in your life at that time? Mm. And all I wanted to do was just say, this music is here and we are living through this extraordinary time of technological mm. revolution where anyone with an internet connection can have access to it for the first time in history. And if you think about that miracle, I mean, you know, it's not even that long ago that if you wanted to hear music, you literally had to go and hear it. You had to hear it played live. And then, you know, the recording industry happened. Amazing. 20th century, finally, you can, you know, you can have it at home. There's sheet music, there's pianos. You would move mm. through that period. But, you know, this rapid evolution that we've lived through in the past decade where everything is available at the click of a button, which is so wonderful in some ways, but can be even more daunting because it's not so good me saying to you well you know what totally. there are 20 million classical tracks mm-hmm. on spotify go for your life love it's what do you do overwhelming like what entirely. type in like classical music i mean what you're gonna get classical is music like, for broken heart yeah like <laughs> dot, dot, dot. classical music for ca- yeah. and of course there are plethora of those playlists mm. but they aren't necessarily curated with the kind of love and attention and affection that mm. i really feel like i want to tell you a story about this woman i want to tell you a story about this broken-hearted man mm. who wrote this thing and I think for me, I wanted to humanise the people who made it and also demystify what it is. And so it's very, very easy. There are online playlists that go alongside every month. And I was not intending that people would love every single choice that I'd Mm -hmm. made. But that in itself was important because then it was empowering you to be like cultivating your own tastes yeah. you know I'm not so into this Mozart yeah. fellow but the next day I'm hearing this woman called Anna Meredith man she's amazing mm. that's my thing that's my jam and then you're realising mm. you're being empowered to know that your reaction to it is totally valid whoever you are and that's very much the spirit of I've got a podcast called Classical Fix and then my great passion project of late is called The Open Ears Project which I've done here at WNYC Studios and WQXR and That is very much the principle behind it, you know, radically reimagining who gets to talk about classical music and on what terms. Which I absolutely love. And so you've just briefly mentioned the Open Ears Project. So I think we'll go to that because I think it's just such a fantastic, fantastic series. And I thoroughly recommend it. Um, And it was born out of this idea, obviously, what you do so well is, and I think as you've just so perfectly described, giving people the opportunity to have an opinion and not telling them what to think, but to have an opinion on that music, which which is so brilliant so inviting um and so what is this so, so in this in this capacity this is, is your new role as a creative director of wnyc radio as you mentioned before which means you're no longer a freelancer i know you officially get a paycheck what is that and a lanyard and a lanyard like a corporate and an office, id which is and an so office. Exciting. <laughs> but what was that so, so transition from having always been a freelancer um, throughout your career to now being in this very official job and having an idea of the open ears project what did that look like pitching that idea and kind of pushing it through because you're used to presumably as we discussed before just being able to kind of hustle you have an idea and then you hustle your way through with it what was that like here I'm just looking at my lovely producer who's probably laughing there was a lot of hustle a lot of hustle here Mm. too I mean you know um, I feel unbelievably lucky to work in this building WNYC WNYC Studios you know great pioneering Mm. podcasting studios and I have been listening to WNYC Studios podcasts for years Mm. as like the gold standard of podcasting you know things like Radio Lab are you know, some of my favourites. They produce such, such brilliant podcasts. You know, yeah. just among the great sort of podcasting um, 
pioneers and journalists and, and makers. So it's incredibly exciting and inspiring to just walk through these halls. We just mm. walked here to get to the studio, past the Radiolab studio, and every time I get this kind of flutter mm. of oh. um, just inspiration, I suppose. Um, so I, what I wanted to do with the Open Ears Project was quite radical because they're, A, like no one does this in classical music mm. because the whole sort of nature of it is mm. there are these experts who tell you what to listen to or how to listen who sort of feed it down and I've been on that side of the mic for so many years mm. and what I wanted to do is literally turn that mic around and say you and whoever you are whether you're Ian McEwan or Sam Mendes mm. or Alec Baldwin or Eva Chen or Aminatu So or all these amazing mm. people who came and did it or a taxi driver a school teacher a firefighter a member of the military if you have a reaction to this music, then I want to hear from you and what you have to say about it really matters. So uh, it was quite a radical idea and we also wanted to kind of, in the same way that Year of Wonder had in a way dispensed this daily dose of music, we wondered what it would be like to do that with a podcast. Um, no one has a daily music podcast. Mm. Like what would it mean to put something mm. out into the world every single day as kind of building a ritual? Mm. And for me, although it was about a gateway to classical music, it was also about recovering the lost art of listening to each other. I really feel like we are constantly bombarded with people talking at us and mm -hmm. words and opinions and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But what does it really mean to take a few minutes out of your day? Mm -hmm. And it really is only a few minutes. And really listen to another human being sharing their story. And music being such a powerful filter through which that story can be heard and received. Um, so we came up with this format where I would do these really quite in-depth and deep interviews and then cut myself out of it so you get this kind of monologue of the person talking beautifully oh, scored with the music I've got an amazing production team mm. Rosa Gollan Curtis McDonald our technical director and Sapir Rosenblatt who helped me craft these little moments really you know we'd cut down these long interviews into like vignettes from a life they're sort of three four minutes long and you hear the music scored really beautifully I think underneath and then you hear the whole track but you're in and out probably mm. in 15 minutes or less mm. so this idea of like could you build a ritual in your life for a daily dose of classical music a sort of habit building thing that also involved connection to another human story so for me it's always about the human story. Mm. I'm interested in the human who made the music. I'm interested in the human who receives it, who mm. makes it, who creates it again and again. Mm. And classical music is interesting in that way. You know, it's constantly being remade. Of course, in pop music, you have people covering songs, but mm. not at the same rate that you do with classical music, where, you know, a piece that was written by Bach in, you know, the 1700s mm. will be made again and again and again by a different human. And every time another human being makes it, it's a different piece. And even every time that same human being does it, mm. it's different. And sort of the evolution of, of our relationship to those pieces is fascinating to me. One of the great, great gifts of doing the show, which I'm continually moved by, is hearing anew pieces that I thought I knew inside out. So people would choose a piece and their story has totally changed how I hear it. Oh, Even so if it's great. a piece that I, I knew, that. like the Bach double, which is one of my absolute favourite pieces mm. of music. And it's in Year of Wonder and it's something that I've played as a violinist all my life. It's very, very mm. important to me. It's probably my ultimate Desert Island disc. Ian McEwan, the atonement author, the right wonderful novelist, came in and talked about that. And he talked about Christopher Hitchens, his best friend, dying and going downstairs, taking the call from his wife, going downstairs, finding the bottle of whiskey that Christopher Hitchens had last poured when they were together and there was like an inch left and he put this record on and he poured this whiskey. And 
He had talked about being 16 and going to boarding school and growing up in an environment where there was no classical music mm. and no arts. And I think you might think Ian McEwan probably grew up in a very mm. privileged household mm. full of classical music and full of, you know, novels. Mm. We didn't. He grew up in North Africa. There was nothing. That wasn't the case at all. He went to boarding school and he had this kind of great eruption and flowering of selfhood in his mm. teens. And the music was very much connected to that because he'd heard the Bach double at that point. And then that continuum of how he connected that to friendship and love and grief and sorrow. I mean, obviously, I was like also having to stop myself from weeping during the interview, which you really don't want to be doing with Ian McEwan. But also this piece that has meant so much to me over the years and is intimately connected Mm. with my own friendships and sorrows and selfhood. Mm. Hearing that refracted through his experience was just so profoundly moving. made me think about him completely differently. I went home and read his novels again in a completely different way, in a completely different light. And as I say, I mean, sometimes we hear from an unknown, equally extraordinary, but if you like ordinary New Yorker or person who's Mm. got, you know, not a famous name, is not a Broadway actor or an Oscar-winning film director or, you know, great musician. And their stories are equally moving and relatable and universal. And that, to me, is what this project is really all about, is you know, how how we connect. Mm. No, and I think that's such a strength of the series that you just get this total diversity of perspective and opinion and life story. And I think in an era in which, as you said earlier, we just have such an abundance of content. You have access to every single song you could ever want on Spotify. You just have, yeah, complete and total access. You sometimes lose that kind of personal, more intimate experience and connection with music, I think, and, and with lots of different kind of types of mediums. And actually bringing it back to the stories and seeing these individual pieces of music through the prism of another person's often really moving, really, moving, really poignant story is just so refreshing and so emotive as a listener. Well, thank you. Thank you for receiving I mean, it in that way, in that. that spirit. Mm. That means a lot to me. I, I really... Um, I'm really, really proud of the series and I am so moved and touched by how people have sort of taken it into their hearts and taken it mm. into their lives. And, and what has the reaction been? I mean, you said it's... It's been really, really overwhelming. The the response on, you know, just people responding on, like writing reviews on their podcast platforms or on social media or actually bothering to write us emails. You know, we have an email address mm. which is like hello at openearsproject.org. And you might hear that on the back of an announcement, you know, like, who's going to actually bother going to their computer and writing an email? Mm. We've had so many people come and, you know, share their own stories and tell us about music in their own lives or just, you know, thank us Mm. for it being there. And it's this tiny little thing. And it's just so gratifying that this sort of belief that music can have this impact on us and can be this very powerful agent of empathy and this tool for connection. Um, and yeah, if it also means that it gets rid of some of that baggage around classical music, yeah, then great, great. Yeah. you know, awesome. And if it, and it gives you a ready-made playlist. We did 30 episodes mm-hmm. in 30 days, dropped daily, and built a beautiful Spotify playlist mm-hmm. and other playlists around it. Um, so if all you want is just the mm-hmm. music, mm-hmm. like you've got this ready-made, really gorgeous mm-hmm. playlist as well. Curated playlist. Curated, curated. We do a lot of curated playlists mm-hmm. at WQXR. Um, but yes, yeah, for me, it's just I've learned so much about human beings mm-hmm. and I've also learned a lot about the music that I thought I knew quite a lot about anyway. So that's mm-hmm. just been immensely gratifying. 
I'm happy to say we are in the middle of recording our second season. I was about to ask. <gasps> that is music to my ears. Yeah, and it's just been so incredible. Like, I feel like it's just got deeper and sort of more moving and more meaningful. And when I say moving, like, even the ones that are happy and mm. jolly and joyful are also kind of really moving. Like, because it's just people in their lives. Like, I'm endlessly curious and obsessed with, like, people in their lives. And so you see these, like, little glimpses into people just living. And that is just very, very cool. What a joy. What an absolute privilege to do this job. As I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, bloody hell, I'm lucky. I know. And as you say that, I'm thinking, I totally agree with you. For me, the most interesting thing is how other people live their lives. And I'm really interested in kind of the, the more mundane, the, just the everyday, the kind of the habits, the, the routines that really structure people's lives. So taking this back to looking specifically at your, your career, what is a typical day for you? Do you have a typical day? No, I really don't. I mean, I suppose I have a slightly more typical day now that I have um, at least this grown-up job with mm. an kind of office and, mm. you know, I get to work at a certain time, whatever. But even then, my day might be um, out and about. It could be in the studio. I could be interviewing someone. I could be having meetings. I could be live broadcasting. I host all the Carnegie Hall broadcasts um, here in New York. Um, so there's lots of different things that mm. I still do. And I could obviously involve writing, could, mm-hmm. lots of things. So there's, no, there's definitely no typical day. And actually, I think that um, (laughs) you said the word structure and that itself just is unfamiliar to me. I think anyone who knows me closely would just say, like, the one thing you really don't have any of in your life is structure. Like, you don't, like, it feels like a failing to me. I feel like I could be more productive if I could just get my shit together on, like, even stuff like email. Like, my inbox is horrifying to me and people see like oh my god you've got 13,000 unread emails in your inbox and you're like, like what's wrong with look, you don't look don't look like I just don't have fucking time yeah. who's got time to answer all those emails I know I, know. I, I had the most brilliant podcast the other day Elizabeth Gilbert talking to Fern Cotton two of my heroes and Elizabeth Gilbert admittedly she had gone through the most traumatic experience of her life which mm. was losing her wife and she was like you know what fuck this. I don't care. I'm just Mm. not going to reply. And I don't have that excuse, thank God. But I did, I was sort of empowered by that. I'm like, I I really, truly don't have time to respond to all the emails. I can't sit in my office all day long and just be on my computer. Like, it's just not who I am or how I roll. And that's not where my... Um, and lots of people be like, yeah, but you could just respond like a bit quicker or a bit more. And, you know, it's terrible to say, like, I feel like, like I no, respond. I the, the ones yeah. I want to respond to, I, I do. And like everything else just sits there gathering dust in my inbox. And sorry to anyone who's listening who hasn't, who hasn't received a reply. Now you know why. Um, too busy. But. But you say you say that you don't that, that you kind of you don't specifically like structure and it, you know every day is very different and and kind of seemingly very stimulating as a result of that. But are there any habits or practices that you've cultivated that have been really critical to you being able to kind of keep yourself like spinning all these plates at once? Coffee, wine. Coffee, it's a good one. Coffee at the beginning of the day, mm. wine at the end of the day. I, I mean. Uh, I, 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 I'm with you on that. I, I like honestly, that. like some, I read those books about like, you know, habits and I get mm. like, obsessed. so one of my absolute favorite things in the whole of life is brainpickings.org, which is the most Ooh. extraordinary treasure trope. Do you not know it? No. Oh. I'm horrified. My God. Slash really excited. I'm horrified slash going. really excited. So yeah. I have, you know that thing when you give someone a book that they haven't yet read or you see someone on the subway reading like your favorite book and you're like, I'm just so jealous that that's like your first time. You are going to. I mean, it's the greatest thing on the internet by miles. Brainpickings.org. Brainpickings.org, okay. This miracle of a woman called Maria Popova curates a kind of treasury of interestingness. Mm. And she's so soulful and she's so fucking smart. Mm. It just, like, makes me 
rejoice. She's mm. just absolutely glorious. And um, she often has uh, posts about like people's habits and like things that they all do. And I'm like, I aspire oh to be gosh. someone who has a habit. Yeah. But really the only habit I like reliably mm. have that doesn't involve like getting my children dressed and mm. fed in the morning is co- is coffee mm. and music and listening. Like I listen to podcasts every day. I listen to music mm. every day. I try and read something every day. Um, but I try even, I know, don't laugh, but I do try like and write things with pens every day because for me, no, actually, there's I'm a so kind of you on that. brain, hand, paper I connection that kind of keeps me... Um, if I'm on a screen all the mm. time, I just like rot. I can't. Mm. I can't do it. I feel Might because same. I'm so old, but I just can't. I can't do it. No, I need to write lists on paper. So, I need to. See, I need to visually see them. I need to hand to yeah. paper. I see that list, yeah. and then I can kind of organise yeah. my thoughts totally in that way. So I suppose it's. I suppose it's that really. And I. I'm. A, you know. Feel incredibly lucky to have very, very, very wonderful friends in my life. Mm-hmm. So if a day goes past and I haven't had some connection with a real, mm. a person who really means something to me, mm. I should not say that obviously my co-workers don't, mm. but it's kind of like, especially because I live now on another continent. I live really far away from, you know, my nearest and dearest mm. apart from my immediate family. And so I, I suppose just being reminded of why we're here, I know that sounds so ridiculous, but it's very easy to get lost in, all of the stuff that adulting I mean mm. I'm not I know it's like a lame word but like it's there's the shit just got really real you know and so I think just being able to check in with the things that really do inspire me stopping to smell the roses for one mm. of a better expression you know just two minutes of just like here we are mm. this is moving to me that's beautiful mm. Look at the, I mean I'm en- eternally inspired by New York so I can just come out of the office and you know take a little quick right mm. into Soho and I just look at a street sign and a cobble I'm like okay done I'm back to being inspired rejuvenated, you know, rejuvenated. so I suppose I take these tiny little drops where I can mm. but to be honest I'm permanently inspired by what I do mm-hmm. as well so and everyone in this building you know mm. is immensely inspiring to me so it's not so much a habit that I do it's just being receptive to that still and also just recognizing how unbelievably lucky I am to be doing this you know for my life and you have you've juggled I mean throughout your career you've always been someone who's done I mean 101 million things why is that is literally that just- 101 million <laughs> I don't know I think it's just in my DNA sometimes I sort of got fed up when I was um in my early stage of career and people would ask me what I would do and I'd mm. meet these looks of just total bafflement and I started just saying, like, oh, I'm a juggler. And I'd be like, in a circus? <laughs> like, I suppose, in the circus that is life. Um, I I think it is truly in my DNA. Like, I'm just, I, I, there is no part of me now that thinks I will ever mm. be able to just do one thing. Mm. And I know that I'm at my most creative and at my most efficient and productive when I do have multiple tabs open, if you like, and I do have multiple... Sure projects on the go they sort of all feed into each other Mm. um i mean you could just say it's chaos addiction but Mm. i like to think of it more as a kind of you know creative cross collaboration Mm. i have this sort of combinatorial creativity Mm. thing going on where if i'm involved in something that doesn't seem to have any connection to the other thing Mm -hmm. they will spark off each other and both things will end up being better I absolutely love that cross collaboration of ideas and everything. Um, and just before we wrap up, some conscious of the time, um, is there one thing you know now that you wish you'd known when you started your career? Well, I suppose the fact that my instincts about who I was and what I needed to do, mm. which I sort of held on to even when it didn't make any sense, like the knowledge that it kind of would be okay. Mm. Um, 
the I could never have predicted the sort of technological shifts and the sociological shifts, the cultural shifts that were about to happen with the internet turning into what it turned into. Mm. I graduated in 2003. It was a completely different place. There was no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram, no blogs, really, no YouTube, mm. no podcasts, really. I mean, actually, WNYC was making podcasts 16 years ago. Word. Um, shout out to them. <laughs> shout out to mm. those early pioneers. But it was such a different universe. Mm. And so now it look. I look back and it sort of makes sense. But at the time, it really didn't make any professional sense. And so I... I suppose it would have been nice in my moments of crushing self-doubt, which is the other kind of great constant in my life, is just permanent sort of self-doubt and insecurity and just self-questioning. And I have this awful, I guess I'm quite a perfectionist, and I have this horrible tendency of anything I do, I immediately don't rate because I've done it. Whereas if someone else was doing it, I'd be like, oh my God, that's just, that's like actual genius. Whereas I sort of can't ever recognise that in myself. One for another podcast, maybe, because yeah, how long have you got? I was going to um, say, you just don't strike me as someone like that at all, just because of just how many really, genuinely really incredible things you always seem to have on the go. That is such a, to hear that you, as someone who I really personally and professionally really do look up to, to hear you say you're filled with self-doubt, I'm like, oh my God. God, well, there's no hope for the rest all of us. All the time, but maybe you have to be if you're going to be the in this world. Engine, like, totally imagine that. if you were like, that book was great. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Done. Like, that's yeah. the best, you know, yeah. give me the Pulitzer now. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, this is, you know, the worst piece of writing that's ever, Ends up ever. driving you. You know, yeah. it's sort of, I, I guess, but that's, I am growing up around that. I'm getting mm. better at it. And I can say, you know, I can look at something like the Open Ears Project. I'm truly proud of that. I really think it's a, oh, a glorious so little thing. It's not going to change the world. It's going to yeah. take like a few minutes out of your day if you listen to a, an episode. But I'm, I'm proud of it. And, you know, mm. we had so many wonderful guests on it. You know, we, we, we started the season with Alec Baldwin. We finished with Esther Perel talking about you know being 17 mm. and having this great sadness in her that she couldn't put words around couldn't find meaning around and the music sort of meeting that sadness mm. and explaining it and creating the space around mm. which she could move and emerge from and Esther Perel talking about how music has been so important to her life and her work and who she is and I don't think you know all we all adore Esther Perel now like she's you know fucking superhero but like finding that little human thing that maybe no one's thought about or heard from her before and sort of being able to elucidate that and it being around the foray requiem which just happens to me this gorgeous piece of music that maybe no one like that's not going to save the world mm. my husband has like a real job where like literally it like, comes home it's like climate change human rights like gender equality r- press press freedom m- rule of law like if something goes wrong at his work mm. it's like an actual like world emergency and my lovely producer Curtis always says there's no such thing as a podcast emergency and it's true like you know I it's this is only art this is mm. only storytelling it doesn't really mm. matter and yet for me I suppose when it, it really really does mm. it just it sort of and I'm driven by just always getting better at that but I think the greatest thing we can do is make other people feel mm-hmm. I can't imagine anything better and anything more exciting and powerful um, just before we end it is a beautiful sunny day in New York City and I'm about to go and have a long walk in Central Park what single track shall I listen to? Oof what, what, where do you want to be taken? I want to be taken I really I want to feel New York oh you want to feel New mm. York God put me on the spot Emma um, I suppose we should probably go with like an iconic New York composer. So I'm going to say 
Philip Glass, who is a real iconic living New York mm-hmm. composer, who was like a New York cab driver before he was a musical icon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to say the opening of Glassworks. Amazing. Well, I will 100% give it a go. And thank you so much for making me feel today and for sharing your unbelievable amount of wisdom and career insight, even though you don't describe it as a career as such. But really, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. I should say that I'm just as inspired by you. Oh, stop it. you know, these things work both ways. I think what you're doing is brilliant. Well, thank you. And thank you for being you. Thank you so much for listening to the How I Hustle podcast with me, Emma Louise. Please don't forget to subscribe and listen to all our future episodes. And please, if you have time, leave us a review as it'll help others find the podcast too. Bye.